0: uh fellow students if you would be so kind to turn to zechariah 8 zechariah go to the halfway point of the bible the midpoint not quite the midpoint but matthew and go back malachi that's the oldest italian book in the old testament malachi and then zechariah so zephaniah haggai zechariah malachi so near the end of the old testament uh revelation By the way, there's 29 people in the Bible with the name Zechariah. So this is a very, very common name. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. It's a very appropriate name because Zechariah's entire ministry was reassuring Israel that God had not forgotten them. God had remembered them. Zechariah is a prophet, but he was also a priest. Like Ezekiel, like Jeremiah, he was one of two or three in the Old Testament that was both a prophet and a priest he was a very influential connected sort of an individual you know some people some prophets were very much uh, out of the mainstream Uh, they were uh, sheep breeders Amos or or in David's case not a prophet but a king was a shepherd boy this guy was a member of what was called the Great Synagogue that was a precursor to the Sanhedrin the Great Synagogue was the ruling body of the Jewish nation back at this era. It was 120 men who literally were the judicial, the Supreme Court of the nation of Israel and the Congress. They did both the legislation and the judiciary for the land, and that was called the Great Synagogue. By the time Jesus came on the scene in the Gospels, it's called the Sanhedrin, but the essence is the same. It was the final authority for the Jewish nation, and Zechariah was a member of that particular group. He was born in Babylon and immigrated to Jerusalem with his grandfather Edo, I-D-D-O. He returned to Jerusalem when the first round of exiles came back in about 537 B.C. with Zerubbabel. And we find that recorded in the book of Ezra. So if you want the chronology of what was going on in the land of Israel during the time Zechariah was the prophet, you would find that in Ezra and Nehemiah. Esther records the Jewish history of what was going on with the nation for those folks that stayed back in Persia. About 2 million Jews stayed in Persia, did not immigrate back to Israel. About 50,000 immigrated in 537, and Zerubbabel was one of those. Now, if you look at how he's described, it says he's the son of his um, father, Uh, Barakaya, but Barakaya is not mentioned as returning to Israel, his grandfather Edo is. So the assumption is, is that his father Barakaya died at a fairly early age. Let me give you a little chronology here. In 536 BC, King Cyrus is the emperor of the Persian Empire, and he issues a decree, as you recall, to allow the Jews to return back to the homeland to rebuild the temple. Now, this fulfilled the prophecy God made through Jeremiah that their captivity was going to last 70 years. Cyrus uh, was interested in having two things. He wanted to have a political ally on the West Coast, just geopolitically. And number two, he wanted the Jewish nation to resume the temple sacrifices and offer prayers for the king and the king's sons. So he didn't know he was fulfilling prophecy, but he was fulfilling prophecy. He had some political reasons for doing that at that point. But nonetheless, 70 years after the captivity, after they were carried away, they came back to the homeland. Only 50,000 came back, right? This is found in the book of Ezra. They began to rebuild the temple, but as we found out a couple of months ago when we were in Ezra, they worked on it for a few years and then they had a lot of external opposition there was a lot of enemies that did not want them in the land and internally they got discouraged and they stopped rebuilding the house of god and it remained unfinished for sixteen years now how many of you have been in this church at least sixteen years remember when when we built this sanctuary i wasn't here then but you saw the structural steel go up that was in nineteen ninety-nine right 16 years ago, let's suppose we put the structural steel up and walked away for 16 years. And people drive by here for 16 years and all they see is structural steel. What would they assume? Ran out of of money. (laughs) Lousy planners did not, you know, finish what they had started. That's what was going on here. The temple remained unfinished for 16 years. God wants them to finish the temple. For obvious reasons we're going to get to that meanwhile king cyrus dies about 520 his successor camsius conquers egypt commits suicide has no heir and 521 darius who's the next in line puts down a revolt assumes the throne and zechariah his ministry begins in 520 bc you can mark that on the calendar 520 bc the second year of um cyrus i mean not cyrus but darius's reign And he begins his ministry two months after Haggai. Now Haggai is the book prior to this, right? Zephaniah, Haggai, these two guys ministered in Israel, same spot, on location, within two months of each other. We're going to get to Haggai in about a month. His ministry took place in August and December. He had two prophetic revelations, 520. August and September, Zechariah began his ministry two months after Haggai. So these guys are contemporaries. And the purpose of their ministry was identical. Get on with rebuilding the temple. Get on with rebuilding the temple. They finally got the message, and in 5.16, they did, in fact, finish the temple. Haggai and Zechariah had the same agenda, same message from God with a little different emphasis. Haggai, when you read the book, it's only two chapters, he's very confrontational. He says, get off your backside, get this temple rebuilt. You want to know why your life isn't working well? I mean, they were having lots of problems. It's because you didn't put God first. You're building your own houses and you're neglecting the house of God. It would be like surrounding this structural steel at Valley Baptist Church in 1999. People are building their mansions. So you know they got the cash, but they're not building God's house. God says your priorities are all screwed up. So Haggai is very confrontational. Zechariah is probably a little more reassuring. Haggai tells them to physically rebuild the temple and Zechariah is calling them to spiritual repentance. He's calling them, bring your hearts back to the Lord at that point in time. And Zechariah spends a lot of time reassuring Israel of God's plans for them in the future. Haggai tell them, rebuild the temple. Zechariah said, why you rebuild the temple? He said, you rebuild the temple, not just for today. Zechariah said, you rebuild the temple because in the future, Messiah is going to come to this temple and reign over planet Earth. So he tells them why they're supposed to do what they are do. The book of Zechariah covers more messianic prophecy than any other book in the Old Testament with the exception of Isaiah. If you've not read the 14 chapters, i would recommend you do it and i know some of it's got some it it can it's going to require some of your brain cells to be engaged a little caffeine helps sometimes a lot of caffeine okay diet coke will work i mean whatever you know but i'm going to recommend you do that at the time zechariah began to minister israel is in really deep trouble they've got very very hard times there's 50,000 of them in a land that is populated with enemies Poverty is rampant. These people are not wealthy people. They continually are attacked by people who want rid of them. There's internal divisions. There's mixed marriages. Their social life is a mess. There's shortages of almost everything. There's no Walmart. How would life work without Starbucks, right? Well, they did it, right? And they're in a great deal of pain and short-term suffering. Now, pain has a way of shortening and limiting our perspective. Would you agree? If you gave me a 24-hour headache, it changes the way I look at the world. I know people that live with chronic pain and it will, will alter the way you view life. When we are in pain, all we can see is generally what's right in front of us, right? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that when you, become, when you begin to suffer or when you get in pain, you become self-centered? say yes come on our empathy muscle disappears when we go through pain i'm not saying that's wrong i'm not judging that i'm saying just be aware that when you're in pain you begin to think about yourself what we need in the middle of pain is the ability to see through it we need the ability to see beyond it and that's what zechariah does zechariah spends well over half of this book telling israel about the future the distant future. Here's God's long-term plan for you as the nation. How many of you ever watched a ball game on screen when you already knew the final score? You ever done that? Nobody ever does that? (laughs) You know what's nice about that? It doesn't matter how bad your team is doing right now, you know the end, right? You know the outcome. That's what Zechariah does. He says, look, here's the end result. Here's your long-term future. I know right now it's very painful, but here's the long-term. And that's a good message for us when we're in the middle of the weeds and the pain and the suffering and and, uh, people that are not as intelligent as we are. All of you are surrounded by people that are not as intelligent as you, right? (laughs) You need to remember the long-term perspective that God has in the end. Here's the key idea. The key idea is found in both verse 9 and verse 13. God's provision in the past and His promises for the future should motivate us to keep us working in the present. God's provision in the past and His promises for the future should motivate us to keep working in the present. See, we obey today, but we don't obey just for today. We obey today based on God's promises for the future and His provisions in the past. So, much of Zechariah's future prophecies have not yet come true even now. They are future even for us. But what God does, he tell, Zechariah tells Israel, this is how God dealt with you in the past. This is how he's provided for you. And all of you and I in this room have a history with God, yes? yes. Has he been faithful? Yes. So you know he keeps his word. So when he makes promises in the future, and he's kept all his promises so far, when you look forward, you can say, no matter how bad it is, God's got a future for me. He's got promises, and he always keeps his word. Now, the first eight, Zechariah kind of splits into two sections pretty neatly. The first eight chapters are one section, and then chapter 9 to 14 are another section. The, the first eight chapters were written between 520 and 518, so two years Zechariah wrote down the first two chapters, and the chapters 9 through 14 come up somewhat a little bit later. So we know Zechariah was a faithful prophet of God. What you may not know is that faithful prophets of God don't always sleep on temperpedic mastresses, right? Take a note, write this down. Matthew 23:35. Just write it down. Matthew 23:35 tells us this same Zechariah was murdered between the temple and the altar. Obviously, someone in political power didn't like him, but Jesus called this Zechariah righteous. Pretty good assessment coming from the king of glory. If Jesus calls you righteous, that's something you probably want to put in your gravestone. God's assessment is all that counts. Mark Twain once said, Always do what is right. This will gratify some and astonish the rest. He probably could have said, always do what is right. This will gratify some and anger the rest. Right? Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the principle. When you please God by doing right, you will surely displease the people who do wrong. That's just reality. Folks, you're going to have enemies if you follow Jesus. End the story. Now, that doesn't mean you'd be a nasty personality and then say, well, I got enemies because I'm following Jesus. No, you're just nasty. I mean, if you're behaving like Jesus would behave and people don't like it, you're suffering for righteousness sake. No problem. Embrace that. But the notion that we can be friends with the world and people that do evil think well of us, you do not want people that do evil to think well of you. You want Jesus to think well of you, like Zechariah. So this chapter, we're going to jump into chapter 8 right now, breaks down into three parts. The first eight verses <clears throat> reveal God's promises to bless Israel after their years of captivity. They're just back in the land. Chapter or Verses 9 to 17 apply that promise to the people of Zechariah's day who were rebuilding the temple needed to get on with it. And then the last six, seven verses tell God's people who have been blessed to get off your backside and be a blessing to the nations. So let's jump in. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, I want you just to take 15 seconds and I want you to glance through the first few verses and I want you to notice how much something is repeated. Just take a few seconds, read through the first few verses. Do you see anything that's repeated? By the way, when you're studying scripture and something's repeated, underline it. When God repeats it, he repeats it for a reason. Amen? What are you seeing a lot of? Thus says the Lord of hosts. In this chapter, the Lord of hosts appears 11 times. When God repeats something 11 times, he is not stuttering. He wants you to underline it so you get the message. The Lord of hosts is a picture of God as the all-powerful commander of the entire heavenly host. And he does this because when you read this chapter, these promises he makes are staggering. Staggering. They would not be possible to a change to attain and the Holy Spirit is using Zechariah to say the Lord of hosts is the one making these promises so they therefore certainly will happen because the commander of the heavenly host is making those promises Numbers 23 19 says God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not make it good God always keeps his word So the question then, if God always keeps his word, what does he say? Go to verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. By the way, the words I am or I will show up nine times in this chapter. So the Lord of hosts is making nine separate promises. I will, I am going to do X, Y, Z. He says, I want you to know, I will certainly make these promises come to pass because God's blessings depend on him, not us, right? You know why God's blessings depend on him and not us? Because he is faithful and we are flaky. Amen. (laughs) All right. It says, God says, I am jealous. Jealous here is a a, a same root word as the word zealous. And the word zealous means to be passionately committed, completely devoted to the welfare another because you love them. God is so committed that he gets angry at anything or anyone that interferes with his love relationship with Israel. By the way, if someone is harming those you love, righteous wrath is the appropriate response. If someone's harming those you love, righteous anger is the appropriate response. The word for jealous here means literally means redness of face. When God says, I'm jealous, I'm zealous for Israel, he says, I get red in the face and anger over those people who want to hurt the people i love as a parent you should do that when people hurt your children or grandchildren righteous anger is very appropriate right very appropriate because god loves israel he says i'm going to come back and live in jerusalem with him i'm going to make my home there go to verse three thus says the lord i will return to zion and we'll dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Have you noticed <clears throat> that children define love using a four-letter word spelled T-I-M-E. T-I-M-E? John, you got it. Nothing says I love you like time alone together. Now dwell, he says I'm going to dwell. Dwell means abide, reside, domicile, Settle down, make your home, right? God says, I'm going to dwell with you. He says, I'm going to set up my home in your turf, and we're going to live together. That's availability, that's time, that's access. God's going to have, in the future, God is going to have a physical address in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. And he's going to live with his people in that city. Have you noticed that when God moves into the zip code of your heart, things begin to change? How many of you ever read a little book called My Heart, Christ's Home? You ought to read that every few months. It's just a really good look at your heart and where it is with relationship to God. When God takes up residence in Jerusalem, Jerusalem becomes the capital city of planet Earth. You need to know that's coming. Jerusalem is going to be called the city of truth, the holy mountain. By the way, there's no capital city on earth that you can call that right now, but when it becomes God's capital city, it will in fact be truth because the king of kings is the God of truth. Now, this is a very human look at what this city looks like. Go to verse 4 and 5. When God takes up residence with his people, and lives with them in his city. There's some wonderful things that happen. Verse 4 says, You want a picture of what Jerusalem's going to be like, or any city, when God reigns there? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And what's verse 5 say? And the streets of this city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. That's a profound word picture of what the world will be like when Jesus Christ is king on the throne in Jerusalem. Understand that at the time this was written, Jerusalem is a very unsafe place, right? They were very vulnerable. They were very, very much invaded. They had no wall. There was no wall. This is 520 B.C. You know when Nehemiah finally shows up to build the wall? 444 B.C., 75 years later. So they're extremely vulnerable. It is not a safe place. No one sits in the streets because there's no wall to protect them at that point in time. So God says you're going to have safe streets, happy streets, harmonious streets. Jerusalem's going to be a really safe place. And they must have laughed. Really? You can't even go out at night. Urban streets today are generally not known to be safe, happy places, right? General rule of thumb. It says here the elderly... Are resting and the children are playing and both are safe in the streets. So if it's safe for the very young and the very old, it's probably a pretty safe place, right? Unlike most of our urban areas at this point. When Jesus is ruling, things are safe. So here's the principle: Whenever Jesus is king, wherever Jesus is king, people live together in harmony, security, and fun. And I put fun in there on purpose. Um, It says the elderly are sitting. It says they need a staff. I don't think these are young people. None of you here are quite that age yet, but we're getting there, right? It's also interesting that in this city of Jerusalem where Jesus reigns, no one's complaining about old people taking up space. Right? And being a burden. It says it's a, it's a safe place, it's a place of peace, and it's relationships. It doesn't look like anybody's isolated or lonely when Jesus Christ is real ruling in Jerusalem. You don't hear anything here about drug deals, extortion, theft, muggings, right? You don't have any crime. Jesus is called the prince of, and where he rules, it will be a peaceable kingdom. It also implies that there will be lots of older people in the millennium, because people live a very long time. If you want to cross-reference, look at Isaiah 65, verse 20. Isaiah 65 is a chapter that describes the millennium, and it says that the youth will live to be 100. That's young. Barely got their driver's license at age 100. Right? It says if you die before then, it will be considered a tragedy because you won't have um, a lot of sin. It says the elderly are sitting, the children are playing. <laughs> I know I'm going to step on some toes here, but that's okay. You can stone me later. There doesn't appear to be any gated retirement communities in Jerusalem, right? The young live in the same neighborhood the old live in, right? There's a continuity between generations. Both learn from each other. And this is somewhat critical, and you can criticize me for it, but I'll say it anyway. Today, our culture tends to warehouse our children in daycare and preschool, and warehouse our elderly at nursing home and residential facilities. By the way, there are times when both those are appropriate. I'm not crit- criticizing necessarily preschool, daycare. There are times that's appropriate. There are times when residential facilities for the elderly is appropriate. But if we're doing it to everybody all the time, you say, I don't think that's really optimal because it isolates us from each other. We don't need to be isolated. In God's kingdom, all you see is relationships. Together forever, right? You see more relationships, people getting along, regardless of their age. You've heard the story of the elderly man who went to live with his son, his daughter-in-law, and their four-year-old son. The old man was very frail, and when he ate at the table, he spilled food on the floor and even broke plates, dishes, when he was eating. His son and daughter-in-law finally got so frustrated, they put him in a corner with his own little table, and then they gave him a wooden bowl so he couldn't break it. One day they noticed their four-year-old son playing with scraps of wood on the floor and his dad asked him what he was doing. He said, I'm making a bowl for you and mom to eat from when I grow up. (laughs) Needless to say, they moved dad back to the family table immediately. (laughs) We are living a culture where people have to be made convenient. Have you noticed that relationships with people are not convenient? Relationships with most people are really messy, right? Your spouses have come to me and said, living with you is really messy. It's it's just, we're, we're people, we're broken, sinful, Tiberius, people. And as such, we need forgiveness. We need healing. And Jesus, when he's on the throne, is going to solve that it says that children are playing did you know the word playing in this passage from the hebrew comes from the root word which means to laugh to laugh you know it's unexpected you know you look at the city of truth where god lives and you think this would be a serious place lots of purpose and serious bible studies right it says where god lives children laugh and play and god smiles right (coughs) Remember some, children, some parents were trying to bring their children to Jesus, right? And the disciples said, we don't have time for that. Jesus is busy with grown-up stuff, serious adult stuff like healing people that are dying. We don't have time for children. What did Jesus say? Let them alone. Don't hinder them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The open, the innocent, the seekers. I'm telling you. It's a lot, a lot. Jesus has a big lap in heaven. A big lap in heaven. You know something? When you see your children and grandchildren playing together in harmony and fun, how does it make you feel? How do you think it makes our Heavenly Father feel when he sees his children getting along? I promise you he smiles. He might laugh occasionally, too, at some of our behavior. That's a, relationships are some of the best use of your energy by far. Do whatever you need to do to invest time in those people you love because you will. every day is one last day, one last day, one last day. So he's saying, I'm giving you a very human picture of what the future will be when Jesus Christ is on the throne. The children are safe, the streets are safe, everybody treats each other with respect and love and harmony, just like Detroit today. Right? Not. So we have God actually living with humans in a city that is safe and fun. And God says, you're going to have trouble believing this. In fact, I know you don't believe it. He says, verse 6, believe it. Thus says the Lord of hosts. If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight, declares the Lord? Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land and the east and the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. How many I am's and I will's are in those three verses? God, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory says, I'm going to do X, I'm going to do Y, I'm going to do Z, surely it's going to happen. And they're living in a dump That's unsafe. They're living in downtown Detroit in Israel. It's a very unsafe place. And Zechariah says, believe it because the Lord of hosts says it. He makes promises to us that we have struggled believing. Remember who's making the promise. So number one, God says, I'm going to make my home in Jerusalem here on earth. And number two, I'm going to gather all my people to live with me in my home in Jerusalem. And it seems impossible to us until you read Jeremiah 32, 17. Mark it down. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Repeat after me. Nothing is too difficult for you. Do you believe that? I'm having trouble believing that you believe that. We generally don't live like that we generally look at our circumstances and go my circumstances are unbelievably bad i have health problems financial problems relationship problems work problems death divorce everyone in this room has a set of problems right Right. i got a question for you knowing your problems how many of you'd like to trade your problems for somebody else's problems in the room? I promise you, there may be people in this room who be willing to swap. Would you want to put them in the middle of the room and say, I'll take your problems, you can have my problems? No. Most of us would say, I think I'll trust Jesus with my problems. Because as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, God allows problems to draw us closer to him, and your problems are custom designed by him. Now, sometimes it's our own stupidity that brings the problems on, but we have a loving Heavenly Father that's going to take our foolishness and use it for His glory and our good. And that's one of the reasons we love Him, is because our sin makes us make stupid choices, which brings on pain. And we have a Heavenly Father that does not say, You made your bed, sleep in it, I'm out of here. We have a Heavenly Father who says, I will be with you and I will turn that bad situation into your good and my glory. That's the kind of a king we have. Is there any problem you have today that God cannot fix? Our real problem is that God can't fix it. Our real problem is that we want God to fix it our way in our time according to our blueprint. God, I want you to take care of it by doing blah, blah, blah now. Here's the principle, verse 6 to 8. God's power to fix my problems is controlled by his perspective, not my opinion. God's power to fix my problems is controlled by his perspective, not my opinion. What's Proverbs 3 5 to 6? Most of you have that memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding because you ain't that smart. Did you not? Doesn't your Bible say because you ain't that smart? Mine does. See, if you had God's power, we would all be dead because we don't have the wisdom to wield that power. Thank God he doesn't give us more power than we already have, right? He's going to fix our problems in his time by his perspective according to his glory. God sees our situation from an eternal perspective and most of us can't see past lunch. You know, we tend to judge God's power by our ability. That's a big mistake. God still takes our five loaves and two fishes and feeds 5,000 people today. God still turns water into wine in his time not mine pretty good rhyme there huh god still turns water into wine in his time what was that mondavi said we will make no wine before it's time yeah it's a pretty good word picture actually because in order to make wine it takes what time patience jesus is working on us for eternity not next week he wants to make us like jesus like his son So God is promising to save his people from around the entire world, from the east to the west, bring them back into the land, and this implies that they need some saving, and they do. A couple chapters back in Zechariah 12, verse 3, it says, In that day, a future date, all the nations of the earth will be gathered against Jerusalem. At some point in time, we know that the nation of Israel is going to stand alone. Period. They will have no allies. There will come a day when the U.S. turns its back on Israel. That's prophesied. I don't know when, I don't know how, but it's going to happen. Everyone will be against her. And from a human standpoint, Israel is doomed. There's no one to save her. Oh, except God. (laughs) Just, Just God. Chapter 12, verse 9. And it will come about in that day that I, God is speaking here, will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, Zechariah 12.9. So God is going to go to war on behalf of his people and destroy all of Israel's enemies. Chapter 13 says, they not only will live in the land, they're going to belong to me in a committed relationship. Zechariah 13, 9, they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. In the future, see, God and man will not be separated. They will not be estranged. During the millennium, those people who belong to God will live with him here on earth. And peace, harmony, and love, and by the way, it won't be the United Nations that produces peace on earth. This may come as a surprise to some of you, but the only form of government that will ever produce permanent peace on planet earth is a monarchy. Planet earth is going to have a king, only one, and the capital city of planet earth is Jerusalem. Chapter 14, verse 9 of Zechariah says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth, physical earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, the only king, and his name the only one. When Jesus Christ rules on planet earth from his throne in Jerusalem, there will be peace on earth, and not until then. I'm sorry, I don't. The United Nations is a wonderful institution by design, but The truth of it is, human beings are fallen. They're sinful, they're selfish, and until they're reconciled with Jesus Christ and made peace with God, there can never be peace among people. Amen? We just wind up exercising our selfishness on each other. Okay, back to chapter 8, verse 11. But I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 12. For there will be peace for the seed... The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. The heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. Now what I want you to do is get your pen out in verse 11. Underline the word remnant in verse 11. And in verse 12, I want you to underline the word remnant. Remnant shows up twice in two verses. What's a remnant? A what? Leftover. What else? Where do you get a remnant from, generally? Pardon? Cloth. You get a piece of cloth, right? And you're cutting out your pattern, and you, those of you that sew, which I really know a lot about, I mean, I'm on thin ice here, but my mom used to make our shirts, and she'd cut out the pattern, and you know, you try and use as much as you can. You know another good word picture? Have you ever baked? You're baking a pie crust, and you roll out the pie crust, and then you cut your design and stuff. What's left over? That's a remnant, right? It's excess. It's leftovers, and when we're cutting out clothing, we have these little scraps of clothing. I know other than Marin, which keeps it. What do you usually do with a remnant? No, Mar- Marin's very good at Marin's very good at keeping stuff. She's she's very frugal. That's why I married one of the many reasons I married her. Many 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 reasons I married her. Yeah. I am sucking up big time. How many? How many? How many of you have ever seeing Pretty Woman? How many ever seen Pretty Woman? They go into the Rodeo Drive store, and this young schmuck who's trying to sell stuff goes to Richard Gere, and he's you know he's trying to impress because Gere's got a lot of money, and he's trying to buy some clothes for his lady friend, and um, the guy's coming up and just about gets on bent knee, and the guy goes, Gere goes suck up to her not me you know i mean right she's the one who's going to be putting the clothes on at that point so anyway a large diversion but we generally throw remnants away do you know who doesn't throw anything away god doesn't ever throw anything away he specializes in what's the peanut gallery saying I said, Maren doesn't throw anything away. God doesn't throw anything away. Is there a difference? No, sorry. (laughs) All right. Right from the Holy Land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right from the Holy Land. God doesn't throw anything away. No remnants. You know why that's good news? We're all leftovers. We are all leftovers. None of us are banquet. Okay? None of us. We're all broken people. We're sinful people. God specializes in using the remnant to accomplish his purposes. Here's the principle. God usually works through the few and feeble, not through the many and mighty. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 says, God specializes in the leftovers, the foolish, not the wise, the powerless, not the powerful. That's the king we serve. Scripture is loaded with God working through the remnant. How many people were in Noah's family? Eight. Noah has three sons and their four spouses, correct? Eight people. And God used eight people to start a whole new human race, right? Start over for after the flood. Joshua and Caleb were how many? Out of two million people, how many made it into the promised land? Two out of two million. Those aren't very good odds. You had two faithful. God uses a remnant. Gideon had how many men? 300. How many Midianite enemies? 120,000. 400 to 1 odds. God uses a remnant. Elijah thought he was the only one left over and God said, I still have 7,000 faithful remnant who have not bowed the knee at that point in time. People often say, I'm the only one. I'm all alone. I could never do this or that. Here's the equation. God plus one is always a majority. God plus one is always a majority. You will never be on the losing team as long as you don't forget that God is the captain. Where we get into trouble is we want to captain the team. There's an old song the uh, Oak Ridge boys did years ago called Nobody Wants to Play Rhythm Guitar Behind Jesus everybody wants to be the lead singer in the band yeah well you only got one lead singer in the band he owns the band right he owns the gig you're playing it's jesus here's the fascinating the more you elevate jesus the more satisfied you become with not being front and center because you have most peace when he's front and center that's when you have the joy that's what he wants you to have the joy So the big question is, in light of all of God's promises for the future, how are we to live with these problems in the present? Verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. Underline that. Let your hands be strong. You who are listening in these days to the words from the mouth of the prophets. Jump down to verse 13. And it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Israel and house of Israel, house of Judah and House of Israel, so underline this. So I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. He says that twice. God had disciplined Israel for their disobedience. Now he's going to bless them. And twice in this chapter, he says, do not fear. And twice God says, let your hands be strong. They were surrounded by enemies. There were only 50,000 of them. They were afraid. They hadn't finished the temple. Their hands were weak. They hadn't worked on rebuilding the temple in over 10 years. He says, let your hands be strong. You know how you get strong hands? Put them to work. Put them to work. God says, go to work rebuilding my temple so that others will come to know me. God didn't free the Jews from Babylon so they could go play golf in Jerusalem. Wasn't the point. He saved them from captivity so that others would come to know him, the God of Israel, Isaac and Jacob, and be saved. God doesn't save and bless us just so we can hoard his blessings. How many of you in this room are blessed? Key question. What are you doing with those blessings? Well, I'm just enjoying them. <laughs> Wrong answer enjoying them is fine but you don't stop with enjoying them you know the best way to enjoy them give them away share them you know what happens when you share them you create room for god to pour more into your life many people live constipated lives i mean spiritually they hang on to everything, right? I mean, there's, there's not going to be enough. If I don't hold on to this, man, I know, God, you're a big God, but your reservoir isn't big enough for me. Give it away. I'm not just talking about money. Give yourself away. Time, involvement, pick up the phone, talk to people, love on people. You got people in your life that need you. They need Jesus and God wants to use you to give it to them. So when you open yourself up and give yourself away, give your time away, he has enough to replenish your supply. Amen? Amen. As a matter of fact, many of us don't see God work a lot because we're not. We're sitting on our hands. He says, put your hands to work. Put your hands to work. Let me bless you so that you can bless others. Stop hoarding, start sharing. God changes our lives so that through us, he can change other people's lives changed people change people so my challenge today is ask yourself god what is it you want me to be doing where is it you want me to be working and many of you in this room are already busy you are many of you in this room are so faithful i see you serving and man i just want to stand up and cheer because you are diligent people But bring that before the Lord and say, Lord, am I doing what you want me to do? Am I working where you want me to work? Are there people that you want me to touch that I need to make myself available to? Okay, brief summary, and then then we'll come up and do prayer requests. Key idea, God's provision in the past and his promise for the future should motivate us to keep working in the present. When you please God by doing right, you will displease the people who do wrong. Oppositions to be expected. Number three, wherever Jesus is king, people live together in harmony, security, and fun. Number four, God's power to fix my problems is controlled by his perspective, not by my opinion. Stop telling God what to do. That would be a good start. And lastly, God usually works through the few, the few and the feeble, not the many and the mighty. Okay, what I want you to do, I'd like you to do, i know many of you have taken notes i appreciate that it's time to write down the one thing that you will do as a result of this lesson just one thing that you will do don't write down five things you'll do if you write down five you know it'll happen you do nothing so write down one thing that you will do in the next 167 hours because i'll see you in 168 right next 167 hours what does god want me to do one thing with this lesson right Because James tells us that if you want a blessing, you should take what you know and do it. Okay? I love you guys.